this week on the Back Table Podcast. I think that's just where the kind of the art of this comes into play. You know, it's your your eye, your eye for aesthetics. And so, you know, does it look good to you? I mean, that that's where, you know, I don't know, I don't really foresee myself ever doing any measurements in this area. It's really mostly like, okay, this was your mom or your sister or your aunt. Like, would you be okay with this, with the, how she looks? So that's just like caring and, and honestly having a little bit of a creative mind and making sure it looks good. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I have a really awesome guest today. I have Dr. Dimitri Arnatakis. He's an otolaryngologist and facial plastic surgeon practicing in Tampa, Florida and Beverly Hills, California. He specializes in facial plastic surgery, hair restoration, and injectables. And Dimitri is here to talk to us about in-office facelifts. Welcome to the show, Dimitri. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Gopi. I'm really excited to be here. For our audience, just to give some context. So Dimitri was one of my residents for all years of of your training. Uh, (laughs) I think, yeah. Yeah, and it was wonderful. You were one of the hardest working people. And I don't think I ever told you that. And now we've made this public. So Dimitri <laughs> was one of my favorite residents. He was so hardworking. It was such a pleasure to Aww, work with. Thank you. So before we kind of get into in-office facelifts, I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. Yeah, so I'm originally from Tampa, Florida. I was recruited to Columbia University for soccer. So I played Division One soccer for four years. And Really loved my time up north in the city. It was definitely a unique college experience. And then I returned back to Florida for medical school. I went to the University of Florida College of Medicine. And that's where kind of my first mentor in my training I met was um, Dr. Bill Collins. Shout out. Yeah, <laughs> who was on the show uh, not too long ago. And now I kind of heard about this. And um, he was, he's awesome. He's the man. I mean, hes he was just such a great teacher. He let me get involved from, you know, as a medical student helping with, I think I even did, you know, my first tonsillectomy under Dr. Collins. And I think I may have disappointed him a little bit when I didn't choose pediatric otolaryngology for my career, but... You disappointed many of us <laughs> when you did <laughs> not true. choose pediatric yeah. otolaryngology. Um, but uh, anyway, so then after medical school, I also actually, between my third and my fourth year, I applied and was selected for a Doris Duke research fellowship at Johns Hopkins. So I spent a year in their otolaryngology department, specifically their kind of head and neck cancer division. And that's where my second mentor came into my life, Dr. Joseph Califano, who's now out in California. And he was an excellent clinician and surgeon and researcher all together. And um, I got embedded in their otolaryngology department. I attended all their lectures. And that's really when I sort of started to take a liking towards facial reconstructive and aesthetic surgery. Dr. Patrick Byrne is a really well-known facial plastic surgeon, was really generous to me, and I got to watch and see a lot then as well. So by the time I got to Dallas for my training with you guys at UT Southwestern, I already knew the path I wanted to take in, in facial plastic surgery. And honestly, from day one, I was sticking to Dr. Leach and Dr. Gilmore and Jordan Rahani and the whole crew. And and then after that, I was uh, chosen for fellowship out in Beverly Hills with Dr. Andrew Frankel, who's a world-renowned rhinoplasty, revision rhinoplasty, and facelift surgeon. And then I came back to Tampa, and the rest is history. Wow. So in your fellowship, then, is that where you got the bulk of your cosmetic uh, experience as well as your in-office procedures? Yes, it was definitely during fellowship, but also in my Free time in Dallas. I mean, I think the smartest thing I ever did was I kind of reached out to all the private practice plastic surgeons around Dallas. And, you know, so many of them are really involved in the AAFPRS, which is the American Academy of Facial Plastic Reconstructive Surgery. Sam Lamb, who's out in Plano, is is a world-renowned hair restoration surgeon. And there's just so many, Rod Warwick, who was with the UT Southwestern Department, and, and then also Sam Hamra, whose name may not ring a bell to a lot of people, but he was the first person to describe the deep plane facelift. And he was right there in Dallas, Texas. And he was towards the end of his career. And I would go uh, visit him and watch him do deep plane facelifts in my free time. And he was awesome. Yeah. So for our trainees who might be listening, how do you find time at what 
points in your residency training, were you able to go and shadow, watch, observe, work with uh, some of the physicians that are outside of your residency training? How did you do that? So it was really, I took advantage of our fourth year block of our research block. So I would, you know, in fact, I did some research articles with a lot of these uh, surgeons. Jim Thornton, who's a Mohs reconstructive surgeon within the plastic surgery department at UT Southwestern. He was so welcoming to me and just a really nice guy. And in fact, we had a a referral of a collaborative patient recently. So I took advantage of that. I was still, you know, I didn't, you know, not do any research. I actually got a couple articles published, but I used all that free time, you know, instead of sleeping in until 10 a.m. and taking advantage of the, you know, the free time from your usual clinical responsibilities as a resident. I was still up at the same time going around town watching these guys in the community who have excellent reputations. And truthfully, there's a difference between what kind of goes on in the hospital and then in a boutique, you know, five-star plastic surgery practice. It definitely has a different aesthetic to it. So I, I really enjoyed that and I, I learned so much from all those guys. So, you know, now for like the program side, because you're right, you know, training programs are all a little bit different, but, you know, you might be somewhere where maybe they don't have as much trauma, but you're interested in doing more trauma, or maybe you want to focus on gender affirming voice care, but maybe they don't have a program for that, or in your case, a real high-end cosmetics practice. Are there any advice or pearls or tips that you would offer to the training programs? Like what can training programs do to help bridge some of those gaps or help you utilize the other resources around you in your community? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really helpful for the the residency programs to be welcoming to the community doctors, especially a lot of our, you know, alumni. I mean, I know a lot of the UT Southwestern alum are, you know, within the Dallas Fort Worth area and they've obviously, you know, had very good training and I think, you know, inviting them back to, you know, not only attend the grand rounds, but to be guest lecturers. I, I think Jordan Rahani, who's an excellent facial plastic surgeon and a UT Southwestern alum, and he's still in the area. And I know he's involved. In fact, we did some like injection workshops with him. So I would apply for a grant from Allergan or Galderma, the main, you know, Botox, Dysport filler companies, and they would send us products. And then we would recruit some of our nursing friends and we'd, you know, do free Botox and filler on them under the guidance of, you know, Dr. Rahani and Dr. Gilmore and, and so forth. And I think, you know, little uh, workshops like that are, are extremely helpful. And um, it was really a lot of fun, too. I think that's great. All right. So let's get into our clinical topic today. We're talking about in-office facelifts. Um, I wanted to start with the basics. How do these patients present to you? Do they all know that they want a facelift or do they even realize that that's what they need? How does that sort of initial visit go? Yeah. So in my consultations, honestly, the patients come in. Obviously, we have our intake form and they kind of write at the top, what's the reason for the visit? You know, sometimes they'll just write deep plane facelift. Sometimes they'll write, my jowls are bothering me or my eyelids or my neck. And so as we get to know each other, you know, what I usually do is just hand them a mirror. And and I also have a, a stool and a mirror in my office where we kind of sometimes will just sit in front of it. And the patients will point to things that, you know, that they're self-conscious about. And then once they've kind of made everything clear, then I'll, you know, do my assessment and, and sort of talk with them what I think is best. And a facelift isn't for everyone, right? There's downtime, there's cost, there's, you know, the stigma, perhaps of the scars around your ears and whatnot. And so some people are like, look, doc, I, you know, there's no chance I'm ever doing that. What other options do you have? Obviously, I, I do some minimally invasive type facial rejuvenation procedures as well. And so I have to basically, you know, give them their all their options and then they decide what's best for them. And they break it down, you know, whether it's their financial reasons or scarring or downtime. And, and then we just decide, you know, what's best for that patient. So then, you know, after that point, you know, if I can get a feel for what they're leaning towards, and then I'll probably give them a more thorough explanation of that route and give them, a, you know, a day one, a day two after a facelift. If truthfully they're interested in a facelift, then we just walk them down basically every day of their recovery from day one to, you know, day 10 or 14 or so. and that I think that gives them a, a more realistic idea of what to expect. Are there certain questions that are always part of your history? Yes. In this pain age, there's so many different types of injections and, and non-surgical treatments. And so, for example, there's something called PDO threads. And they're, you know, sold as kind of a, a quick facelift, if you will. They don't last very long. 
there are these barbed wires basically that go underneath the skin into the dermis and smas, and then try to kind of lift up your gels and nasolabial folds. And anyway, you know, when you, if someone's done that six months ago and you're going into surgery, you, you would like to know that you're going to run into that barbed wire when you're elevating the deep plane lift. So yes, there are certain things I'd like to know about, you know, what they've done to their face and neck in the past. And so you'll kind of go through prior procedures, filler or other sort of non-surgical or injectable or another. Yeah, injectables. And it kind of falls into one big category there. And then, of course, their medical history as well. So, you know, any cardiac issues, um, we definitely want to have them have medical clearance if there's anything concerning in their medical history. So we'll have them get EKGs, chest x-rays, blood work, and uh, a clearance letter from the primary or their cardiologist or whatever it may be. If the patient's um, a smoker, for example, how do you counsel them with like a history of smoking? Do you try to have them stop, you know, perioperative? Is that even reasonable or is it just setting the expectations with that risk? Yeah. So I think in the past that would have been like a hard no for a lot of a lot of surgeons to just not operate on them. I think now, I think there's certainly been a trend towards, okay, they can safely undergo a, a face procedure, especially a deep plane facelift. There's better um, vascular supply to the skin dermis area. So I would encourage, and I think a lot of um, plastic surgeons do this as well, is to have them undergo hyperbaric oxygen. Um, certainly, you know, several sessions after the procedure that just obviously increases oxygen delivery to the tissues. So I baseline have all my facelift patients um, at least do one session postoperatively. And for smokers, you know, we would have them do at least, you know, probably five or six just to, you know, be safe. And then how does age play a role in your decision making? And my other question it's leading into is when I think of medical management or less invasive surgical management, like how do you know when you're going to try fillers first or non-surgical versus going uh, straight to a surgical? And does age play a role? And, you know, what do you think about when you're teasing some of that out? Yeah, age does play a role to a degree. I mean, I've done a facelift on an extremely healthy 82-year-old before. I mean, it's really just a matter of how, you know, the patient feels. I mean, that person felt like they were going to live another 15, 20 years. So in that case, you know, why would I deny them just because of their age. They had no medical issues. They were extremely healthy. You know, they exercised every day. They ate well. And so I thought the person was a great candidate. They did excellent. They, they were extremely happy. Usually in the 30-year-old, uh, 40-year-old crowd, that's, you know, obviously they don't have as much skin laxity. And so usually those patients are presenting for more minimally invasive or non-surgical options. I have done neck lifts, though, on patients younger in their 30s and 40s who just hereditary, they have, we kind of call it now like deep neck fat. So there's, when you do liposuction, you're targeting the subcutaneous fat, which, you know, underneath the epidermis, dermis, and, but on top of, in the neck, on top of the platysmal muscle. Now, deep to the platysmal muscle in the neck and in between the submandibular glands, there's kind of this hereditary deep fat. And so um, now there's a, a procedure that I do a lot of, you know, platysmoplasty or deep neck lift. And so you make a an incision just underneath the, the chin in the submental crease there. And the platysma, as we know, is usually to hiss in the midline. So we basically undermine the platysma bilaterally. And I usually do it for at least four to five centimeters. And you're in that submental triangle there, and I'll, I'll directly excise that deep fat. That's significantly different. It will provide a significant impact compared to just liposuction. Because after you kind of carve out that deep fat, then you take the platysma edges and you do a platysmoplasty, so you're suturing that up to like the hyoid fascia. So in, in females, you really want to have that strong sort of 90-degree cervicomental angle. And really, the best way to recreate that in a natural-appearing way, in a long-lasting appearing way, is, is to do this sort of deep neck lift or a platysmoplasty, as it's traditionally called. And then just kind of going back to some of the initial a review of history. Are there any other medicines on their medication list that you have them stop or that are red flags for you? I mean, certainly, you know, anticoagulant medications, so Coumadin, you know, even aspirin. I mean, trying to do facelift surgery or, you know, any surgery for that matter when, they, when they're on a medication like that, it's just, it's exhausting and frustrating. I mean, everything, you're, you're bipolaring like every other tiny blood vessel. So I would not operate on a patient who's, who's taking one of those medications. It's just not worth it. I mean, this is elective surgery, right? 
this isn't life or death. So the benefits don't outweigh the risks in that scenario. And then I feel like in ENT, we love questionnaires. Are there questionnaires for um, like the aging face or for your facelift candidates that's part of your history? So I don't have a questionnaire that's a part of my history, but we do from just a, a business and kind of marketing standpoint, we do contact the consultations ahead of time to get a feel for why they're coming in, what's bothering them. Are they aware of the downtime associated with the uh, face? So it's almost kind of like a screening because sometimes people don't really have realistic expectations and we just want to kind of set the tone from the start. So it is a questionnaire in a way, but a little different than I think what, what you guys traditionally do. Yeah, no, I think that's pretty cool because like you said, it sets expectations on both sides for you and the patient. And so when they're coming in, it kind of saves everybody a little bit uh, more time and probably makes communication better. It, it makes it much more efficient, which as you remember for me, I'm like king of efficiency <laughs> or trying to be efficient. So yeah, they were kind of on the same page from the get-go. It's not like, oh my God, I, I thought, you know, you were going to do this and you're recommending this. Like we're, you know, walking hand in hand with the patient from the first step they take into the office. Yeah, that's pretty cool. In terms of thinking about facial analysis and your physical exam, you mentioned you are looking with the patient sitting down, they have a mirror. How do you analyze the face and like, what is part of your exam? Yeah. So for a traditional facelift consultation, I, I just feel like to be consistent and organized, we really just kind of go top down. So I start with their forehead and their brow position. The most common adjunct procedure I do at the same time as a facelift is an, is an upper eyelid blepharoplasty. So I'm looking to see if the patient has dermatocolasis, both in their upper and lower lids. Um, usually in the lower lids, there can be skin laxity or perhaps infraorbital fat pad herniation. Then I'm looking at to their nasolabial folds, their gels, obviously the quality and the texture of their skin. And then really I've kind of migrate inferiorly to the neck. I'm looking to see if they have, you know, a lot of subcutaneous fat is the deep neck fat that I was referring to earlier. Do they have platysmal banding? How lax is their skin? And then another area really is the upper lip. And so as a patient ages, the upper lip distance elongates. So the space from like the columella to the top of the upper lip. And there's a procedure that I also do a lot of called the lip lift. So we, we design a bullhorn shape and that's right at the base of the nose. And so the scar heals right into that crease there. And a sign of youth or a sort of quote unquote sexy feature is to have a, a little bit of an, an upturn to the wet part of the lip and a shorter distance there. So that's also something that I'm taking into consideration when I'm evaluating the patients. So my exposure, it's been so long, you know, to the cosmetic patients. This was years ago during residency. And I remember photography and pictures, especially for the rhinoplasty patients. Uh, is that part of your evaluation for, you know, a facelift patient? Is photography or any of that important? Uh, yes. Yeah, we, we take preoperative photos. We do frontal, oblique views, profile views, and then also what we kind of call the chin down view. So you can, we have the patients kind of look towards their feet. It shows the, they have a lot of bunching of skin and, and subcutaneous fat in their neck. And so, of course, we do preoperative and, and then usually postoperative photos about six to eight weeks later once all of the swelling and everything has gone down. Um, and that actually is a, is very helpful to then, you know, patients come in and they're like, what am I going to look like? And so, with consent of prior patients, we will show their um, other patients' photos to the new patient. And that really helps put them at ease when they see how, you know, natural it, it can be done. And the scarring with time fades nicely. And, you know, sometimes you really have to get up close and personal to even notice the scars. In terms of the photography, so is it similar to the rhinoplasty positions? You'd mentioned frontal, oblique. Chin down is not, I think, different, right? It's not part of your rhinoplasty. Correct. Yeah. So there's a cer certain different ones that you take. Yeah, just a, yeah, a couple different. With the rhinoplasty, we do like a base view. So that instead of chin down, the chin kind of tilts upward so you can see the nose in that perspective as well. But, you know, fairly, fairly similar. I just remember the blue background. Does everybody use the blue background? So I have a black background. I think it shows up a little bit better, but I, I don't think there's any kind of quote unquote, gold standard when it comes to that. You look at other plastic surgeons' websites or their photos online and everyone seems to have something slightly different. 
And two questions. One is, uh, what kind of camera do you use? And then is it just your iPhone camera? Or I just remember my attending having a big Nikon with a lens on it. And then two, how do you learn to take these photos? Where did you learn? You know what I mean? Because I feel like I remember he would be like, okay, take these photos and I take them and he would have to delete all of them and retake them. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you're taking me back to my fellowship too. Yeah. Um, so now, honestly, with the quality of the iPhone, we use an iPhone. And it's nice too, because it integrates. So we have two electronic medical records. I use a platform called Dr. Chrono and another iCloud-based photo storage. It's called RX Photo. And they integrate. So you can take the photos on RX and then it automatically associates the photos with the patients in our electronic medical record. So it's great. And the photo qualities with the new iPhones is excellent. I mean, you know, to invest in a really expensive camera, that's, it just seems a little unnecessary. And, and I, I like the ease and the safety of it just going straight from the iPhone camera to the iCloud, um, you know, secure system. So that's, that's what we do. And I think a lot of doctors have transitioned to that as well. That's really cool. Do you take measurements? Like, are you measuring angles or have a caliper out? Do you do any of that on the photo or is there anything like that going on? I don't do that in the photo, but I, of course, have calipers. And so, for example, when I'm doing an upper eyelid blepharoplasty, I'm measuring where the eyelid crease is and how much skin I can safely remove and make sure it's, you know, it's consistent from left to right. And so if I'm doing a lip lift, um, say I'm doing a five millimeter lip lift, I'll use the caliper for that and make sure all my measurements are consistent. I'm doing my measurements more like on the patient precisely than perhaps on a on a photo or anything like that. And so what are the measurements that you usually document? So, for example, on an eyelid blepharoplasty, I'm measuring um, from the lashes to the crease. And then I'm also measuring precisely how much skin I can safely remove without provoking lag ophthalmos. And a lip lift, measuring kind of five points in the very midline from the columella to the cupid's bow to the middle of the cupid's bow, and then from the sides of the columella, and then sort of a, a more lateral measurement as well. And usually, again, depending on the patient, but say they're, they're all roughly about five millimeters. But those are, in a facelift, you don't really do measurements or anything like that. Okay. Okay. I didn't know if there was something you measure for how much skin you can take for. <laughs> it's more just kind of after a couple hundred, you get a feel for how much you can, <laughs> yeah, you can take out. Okay. So, you know, we keep throwing around facelifts and non-surgical and surgical. Can you just kind of organize it for me? So like, tell me first about sort of the non-surgical facelift options and then plastics is such a language, right? If you don't, know the vocabulary and the language, it's hard to know. So like when we talk about traditional versus mass versus deep, can you just kind of go through first non-surgical and then organize the surgical for me? Yeah, for sure. So I think within the non-surgical, there's, you can say, sort of non-invasive and and minimally invasive. So something non-invasive would be like microneedling or radiofrequency microneedling. There's a radiofrequency microneedling is basically where I have this platform where 24 needles come out, they penetrate the skin, and they're delivering radiofrequency energy into the, you know, the papillary and the reticular dermis. And basically, that is promoting new collagen formation, which, of course, as you know, is going to help sort of improve the texture of the skin. You get some skin tightening as well. We usually do three sessions. You space them out a month apart because that's the time period it takes for the collagen to rebuild. And you'll see some nice improvements, mostly in the quality and the texture of the skin. Um, I tell patients, you know, your pores will improve. Again, the texture and the quality of the skin, you will, you will see a little bit of you know, improvement in the laxity. Botox and fillers, I would say, fall within a non-invasive category as well. Botox are neuromodulators, which we use for frown lines and forehead lines and crow's feet. Um, they have other causes as well, especially reconstructive patients. Um, need facial reanimation, sometimes issues, and you could, you know, do Botox to help alleviate that. Then fillers or hyaluronic acid. So we already have hyaluronic acid in the skin surface. And basically, you're providing volume to a patient in areas where they're a little depleted. I know there's been tons of marketing as far as like a liquid facelift, if you will. I'm not a huge proponent of that. I just think sometimes that people can look overdone and fake and you're injecting five, six syringes that, you know, the, that adds up financially and, you know, it's only going to last six, nine months. Just to clarify, the liquid facelift, is that part of your HA fillers or is that different? 
Yeah, that's HA fillers. That's it. Or it, it could be it. something called sculpture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It could be sculpture, radius. There's different types of, of fillers. And so I just, now that I do so many deep plane fake flips that I'm more proposed something that I know is going to last, you know, probably 10 plus years. It'll really give them the result they're looking for. And, you know, then they won't, really won't have to be injecting their faces with all these fillers and such. But, you know, to each their own. And, and so some people just, that's the route they want to go. Then I think a step up in our totem pole is minimally invasive procedures. So we have something, it's called radio frequency assisted lipolysis. So what I do is I make tiny access or port sites underneath each lobule and then right underneath the chin and the submental crease. I basically use a 15 blade to make like a tiny dick in the skin. And then it's enough space to allow the probe, but in this case, the device is called face tight. T-I-T-E is how they market it. Anyway, the probe goes underneath the skin and it's delivering, again, energy that is supposed to kind of cause coagulation to the adipocytes in the subcutaneous tissue and the subcutaneous fat and also promote skin tight. Now, that can work very well for some patients, usually for patients in their 20s, 30s, early 40s, what we refer to kind of as these gap patients. So they're, they're in between the injections and they're not perhaps quite ready for a neck left or face. And so this is a procedure that I do in my office under local anesthesia. We provide perhaps, you know, four milligrams of Valium. We have, you know, tramadol if they need be or extra drink Tylenol. Uh, we have Pronox, which is laughing gas. And that really provides for a very comfortable setting. I inject a couple hundred cc's of tumescence, so basically dilute lidocaine, and they tolerate the procedure very well. It takes less than an hour, and they'll, they can get a really nice result as far as kind of jawline contouring and, and improving the tightness in their neck. And then, of course, the step up from there would be something more invasive like a face or neck lift. And as you mentioned, yes, there are definitely different techniques in performing a, a rhididectomy. And now we really just kind of refer to it as a facelift. That was the more traditional term for it. And my preferred technique is what's referred to as a deep plane lift. And that's what I learned from Sam Hamra, who, who was the initial author and back in the early 90s. He wrote about it. And now it's kind of cut on like wildfire. And what that is doing, you're, you're elevating the SMAS in the face. And as we know, this, this mass is continuous with the platysma on the neck. So that, I think, provides patients with the profound difference. And it's something that's long-lasting. Just going back to the minimally invasive technique, um, you said that that's sort of for the gap ages from 20 to 40. Is there anything preventative about that? You know, we think of like people getting Botox earlier on to try to prevent wrinkles and things like that. Is there any prevention with that? I do think starting Botox, you know, it lasts usually about three to four months. But even if you do it once or twice a year, it will likely prevent the lines from deepening as you age. So um, staying on top of it, I think will be helpful. You know, next thing you know, if you've never done it in your 60s, then you could have really deep, deep furrows. So it can be um, preventative in that regard. Of course, good skincare uh, when you go out, you know, wear sunscreen. I think that's a huge and really overlooked to avoiding all the sun damages. And, you know, not only just obviously the risk of skin cancer, but also um, just taking good, good care of your skin. So those, those are the, the main things I think to help as to prevent anything as you age. And then in terms of your tumescence, what's your dilution? Measurement. So one thing that I'm not sure if you guys are, are using a lot of at the hospital, but I am a huge fan of TXA, tranexamic acid. So my usual facelift tumescence is it's actually kind of easy to remember. It's 50 cc's of normal saline. It's 50 cc's of plain 1% lidocaine, 50 cc's of plain quarter percent morcane, 10 cc's of TXA, and then one cc of fresh uh, one to 1,000 epinephrine. And um, I think TXA honestly has been a, a game changer, at least for me in sort of an, an aesthetic surgery. When I was a fellow, my fellowship director wasn't using TXA at the time. And some of the patients would have really tremendous bruising and, and swelling. And he's an excellent surgeon. And he wasn't using TXA at that time. And, and I started, when I got into practice, I had heard of this other plastic surgeon in New York City using it. 
And so I started doing it. And I mean, some of these patients honestly can get by without a bruise. It's, it's honestly really incredible. So I definitely include it. I, I use it in, in pretty much anything I'm trying to do. I think it, and you can also prescribe it as a oral tablet too. You know, if you're doing in-office procedures and you can just have the patients take it postoperatively. Uh, that's interesting. Okay. You mentioned some local anesthetics and you mentioned Pronox and Tramadol. Do you have to have like a special sedation license or do you have an, a sedation nurse? So Pronox, it's just like a 30 second onset and then it goes away in like in a minute. So it's very short, very short acting. And with Tramadol, that's just a tablet. So that's just like prescribing someone narco or whatever. So technically anybody or not anyone, but you know, a physician, you can do that in your office. I am in the process of building actually from ground up a new office with a a surgery center attached to it. And I'm working with a company to help me get it credentialed. It would be quad A SF credentialing. And in that facility, we are able to do obviously local anesthesia. You can do IV. So I I truly do most, the majority of my facelifts under IV anesthesia. So propofol drip. And I I have a board certified anesthesiologist there who's who's administering medication. So I would never do that just in the office. I have obviously an anesthesiologist there doing it. But that's, I rarely, maybe once a year, do a facelift under general anesthesia. 99.9% of the time it's under uh, propofol. Okay. And then going back towards the surgical sort of, you know, the facelifts, I think of skin as just like the traditional. And then on the other end, yeah, we talked about the deep plane. Where's like the SMAS facelift? I, I understand the SMAS is part of your deep plane, um, but can you tell me the differences in that or the nuances? Yeah. So in the, the beginning, in the I think it was the early 1900s is when the first facelift was done, honestly. And that was just skin only. And, you know, if you do that, and some plastic surgeons today will still do that, you know, they may look okay for a couple months, but you're not really addressing the issue, which is the cutaneous ligaments underneath. And that's what's leading to the jowling. You're not releasing any of that, especially in the jowling area and in the neck, you, re- you need to address the platysma. Uh, otherwise, they're just still going to look lax down the road. So with the SMAS, the result after the next step was then looking into the SMAS. So there's plication and imbrication. Basically, what, what you're doing is putting in like a deep suture into the SMAS and you get control. You know, you have a 2 PDS or 2 micro or whatever it may be. And you, if you get a good bite of it, a good purchase of the SMAS, and then tack it back kind of in a posterior fashion, you'll see, you know, some lit. Now, you're not actually releasing, though, the most important part, which is the zygomatic cutaneous ligaments, the masseteric cutaneous ligaments, the mandibular cutaneous ligaments, and the cervical retaining ligaments. That is really important, and that's where the, the significance of the deep plane facelift, because it's addressing release of all those ligaments. When you started saying that, I'm like, I think I studied that for my parents at some point. And I'm like, oh, yeah, there's more going to be more mobility now. <laughs> Gosh. Um, and then what's a, I've seen the term mini. What's a mini facelift? So, you know, I, and yeah, the, people will throw these terms around just for marketing purposes. Uh, I think a lot of patients are scared when they hear, oh, my God, a full-on facelift. And so sometimes a mini is where maybe they're not making the full extent of their, their incision I mean, when I do a, a facelift, the incision or the scarring kind of extends into the cyburn. It comes around, uh, you go retrotragal in females pretty much all the time, underneath the lobule, into the posterior crease, and then horizontally across to the occipital hairline, and then I go inferiorly along the occipital hairline. So perhaps it's a, maybe a patient in their early 40s, and they don't need a lot of skin removed, then you'll just kind of make half an incision, if you will. I see. Okay. And then in terms of like when we talk about in-office facelifts, I would think that pretty much all your non-surgical, so the non-invasive and minimally invasive RFA fillers, all that can be done in the office. In terms of the surgical, are all of these on the table for in the office too? You know, what procedures can you do and how do you decide? So obviously that's where it takes into their medical history you know, it's really important. So if someone's had a cardiac history, then I'm certainly not, you know, going to be doing anything in the office. But if it's someone maybe in their mid-40s who they're very fit, they don't take any medications, you know, in that case, I would say they're probably, they could be a candidate for um, doing this under Valium and local anesthesia. Uh, We obviously have monitors and we're monitoring 
their vitals throughout the procedure. But in that case, it could be very safe. And then again, you, the patient avoids going through anesthesia. That you know, It's not like uh, there's no risk with obviously going under general anesthesia or even propofol. So this sometimes could be even safer for. So pretty much, theoretically, you can do everything in the office, but it just really, the medical history is obviously going to be important. And are there any patient characteristics where you're like, no, we got to go to the OR? What do you look for where you're like, you're just, you're not going to be a candidate other than the cardiac patient? Yeah. I mean, personality, you know, if someone comes in and they're like, they're very anxious. I mean, because when they're in the office, they're awake. And so some people will like snooze if they're like sensitive to the Valium, but other people, the last thing to want is to, you know, have a conversation with them while I'm trying to do surgery. So I want them to be comfortable, but at the same time, I don't want them yapping away at me the whole time. Or if they're really anxious, I don't want them to be, you know, fidgety or moving around, of course. So if I get a sense that the patient's going to be like that, then I just say, hey, let's, let's just do it in the surgery center and you'll be more comfortable, you'll be asleep and, and all yeah. that. And I imagine you really have to kind of explain to them and talk to them about what's going to be going on. You could probably tell just based on how they're taking that information in of whether <laughs> what, what's going to actually work and not work. Exactly. A hundred percent. Okay, so before we get to like the day of surgery, you know, what's actually going on, what are your pre-op instructions? Do you have them do things like Arnica or, you know, do you have anything that they do to prep them for surgery? Oh, yes. So we actually have them come in about three weeks before their surgery or their procedure and they meet with my uh, main nurse, Kat, and she sits with each of them for probably an hour and goes over our entire preoperative sheet. And so she'll review their medications, you know, when to take the antibiotics, pain pills. We provide them all with Arnica and bromelain pills. If it's a facelift, we have a, a custom skincare line that we give to them and she explains that to them as well. And then she'll go through just everything, what to expect if they have drains. So a lot of times I'll actually leave JP drains for uh, 24, 48 hours in these patients. She'll teach them how to care for them, how to record the output and how to take care of their sutures, how to clean them, all, all that stuff. Uh, you know, and then we just review with them their appointments. I probably see these people three to four times in the first 10 days. So we really have them come back to the office often to make sure everything's, you know, healing as, as well as possible. And we'll talk about post-op in a second, but you said the TXA oral, is that part of your post-op or do you ever do that pre-op too? If I'm including it in my tumescence, uh, I pretty much I usually won't give it as a post-op as well. I think just in the tumescence is enough. I mean, obviously, especially if someone has a history of clots or anything like that, then you, you probably won't even want to give it in the first place. So I make sure before I do that. But it, I think in the tumescence, that's plenty. If, if it's something maybe I'm doing uh, like an upper eyelid blepharoplasty alone in the office, where I, in that case, I'll just use traditional local 1% lidocaine with 1 to 100,000 epinephrine, you know, maybe in that case, that patient could warrant some postoperative TXA. But yeah, for the most part, it's in my tumescence. Okay. And so now we're there day of, we're going to do the procedure. Uh, we talked a little bit about hemostasis and sedation. Is it your, basically the tumescence and with the TXA in it, um, that's also going to have your local in it. And then you also do a little Pronox and some Valium and Tramadol if they need it. Correct. For the in-office procedures, correct. What instruments do you like to have on your back table? Oh, we've got it. That's kind of taken some trial and error. We've got that <laughs> down now to a T. I think the most important instruments are my lighted facelift retractors. So I have three now. I have a, I guess, similar to like a lighted offrict retractor that I use. It's, that, it's very narrow. And I use that when I'm doing the platysmoplasties because it can fit through a small cemental crease. For the neck, I have a maybe five inch uh, lighted facelift retractor and then one that's maybe like eight inches. So I use the eight inch when I'm trying to elevate the skin flap in the neck. So I get all the way, like I'm connecting my flaps from, I basically have very wide undermining from the right ear to the left ear and, you know, across uh, the chin, of course. And when I elevate the deep plane, I will switch then to the, the five inch uh, lighted retractor. And with my left hand, I... I'm holding up the skin and the SMAS with the light of retractor. And then I have a facelift scissor in my right hand that I'm elevating in a vertical fashion to, you know, create the flap. So basically my two or three facelift scissors and my light of retractors, I would say, are my most, most important instruments. And then um, in terms of hemostasis, do you have any 
bipolar tricks, pledgets and afrin. What do you do for that? I don't do, I do, honestly, it's just bovi and bipolar. It's funny when you transition from, you know, the, the big hospitals where you have every, you know, gadget under the sun. It's kind of, I've forgotten about half of them, all the Surgicel and the Fibrillar and the whatever else. I mean, you don't really, you don't understand it. You don't really appreciate this stuff when you're a resident, but you know, they're really expensive. And I think the best form of hemostasis is just, you know, being a, a safe surgeon and being in the right plane. If you're in the right plane, a lot of times you really shouldn't have any bleeding. So I think for me, bipolar is just the number one thing I use for coagulation. In terms of tricks to raising your flaps, anything that you do differently now or any advice you would give to like um, somebody that's coming out? Yeah. So I'll start my uh, incisions with a 15 blade, a 15 blade, and then a 10 blade in, in the occipital hairline area. And then it's really getting the right instruments. And, you know, in the beginning, I was operating at this one surgery center and I was just using what they had and it was kind of frustrating. And so then I, you know, I reached back out to my mentor and a couple other uh, surgeons I respect. And I was like, what, what instruments are you using? And they told me, and then I, I bought those and it was like a night and day difference. And so I have, like I said, three different facelift scissors. And, you know, one I use for elevating the skin flap, one I use for kind of contouring the flap and the other one for vertical spreads. And the three of them really helped me be efficient and, and get in that safe, that safe plane. And then any tricks or pearls to make sure you don't injure any of the facial nerve? I think it's probably staying in the right planes. Yeah, staying in the right plane. And, you know, that's 15 years of training to help you, <laughs> you know, be safe, right? That's why we have, that's why residency is so long. That's why you do a fellowship. That's why you watch videos in your free time. I mean, honestly, when I was a resident, that's another thing. I mean, there's um, QMP where a couple very well-known fish plastic surgeons will post their videos of this is how I do it. And I mean, I've watched Dr. Andrew Giacono from New York City, who's world-renowned now, and Dr. Mike Nyack, who's also a you know, facial plastic surgeon in St. Louis. Um, they each have their own um, video series, and they're professionally done, kind of like this here at Pack Table with all your, your fancy <laughs> microphones and all the <laughs> stuff that I, <laughs> I got to get caught up on. But um, uh, I, I watched those videos from the back when I was starting out, you know, or in fellowship and residency, and that really helps you learn how to do these surgeries safely. So, you know, unfortunately there's, you just got, eventually got to do it yourself and you learn from experience. And it's just, I mean, the same goes for you or Dr. Trulson doing head and neck cancer. He's done a gazillion prodidectomies. I mean, I'm sure he's a lot better now than when he started out day one. So <laughs> there's really, there's really no substitute for experience. Yeah. In terms of um, securing the flaps, you know, what kind of sutures do you use? What do you find are your pearls there? Yeah, I basically incise the SMAS from the lateral campus. Uh, if like you can imagine an imaginary line from the lateral campus to the angle of the mandible. And then I actually extend it. So I'm technically doing an extended deep plane because I'm releasing the cervical retaining ligaments, which are the ligaments between the SEM and the platysma. So I have a long flap that's going all the way, again, basically from the lateral campus past the angle of the mandible and then into the neck, I'm elevating the platysma about five or six centimeters uh, down into the neck. And then I create like a little back cut into the SMAS along the mandible. And I'm using two OPDS. I use about four of them in the face and I'm getting a nice purchase of the SMAS and I'm tacking it back to the fix. So where I cut into the SMAS, we refer to kind of as the mobile SMAS. And the fixed SMAS is right in front of the, the tragus. And that's where I'm putting in my deep sutures. And so I know that's going to be a good, good sturdy bite that the sutures aren't going to let go or break or anything like that. And that's when you can really see uh, a, a tremendous lift in the jowls and the nasolabials. Then I'm taking the platysma, I'm slinging that back behind into the mastoid fascia behind the ear. And that helps create a really sharp, defined jawline. In the neck, when I'm underneath the chin in the platysma, I use a uh, 2.0 Vike roll. I first actually get a deep bite. So right, I start at the hyoid, at the level of the hyoid, and I work superiorly. I get a bite of the hyoid fascia, and then I do inverting bites from the left and the right edges of the platysma, and then I stitch it down. And I do uh, at least four or five uh, there all the way up to my incision line. And that is what really helps create that sharp cervical mental angle. And um, how do you know you've tacked it up enough? Is that just, again, through experience and kind of doing enough of these? 
Yeah, I think that's just where the kind of the art of this comes into play. You know, it's your your eye, your eye for aesthetics. And so, you know, does it look good to you? I mean, that that's where, you know, I don't know, I don't really foresee myself ever doing any measurements in this area. It's really mostly like, okay, this was your mom or your sister or your aunt. Like, would you be okay with this, with the, how she looks? So that's just like caring and, and honestly having a little bit of a creative mind to making sure it looks good. And then how do you normally like to close the skin? So closing the skin, I mean, that's actually the, I always loved suturing. When I was a resident, I mean, some of my, my favorite parts of the times were when we were at the end and you get to stitch up the skin. I've always, I've always liked that. I've yeah, always. They step away. You're kind of in yeah, the exactly. The music's yeah. kind of setting in. Yeah, and you're like, okay, exactly. I'm about to go eat soon yeah. too. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I, you get to change the music finally to something yeah. you like. And then, yeah. <laughs> So I will use, a lot of it is running, locking, 5-O-Proline. I'll do two layer, I mean, always two layers sutures to obviously take off tension on the skin edges. So, you know, 5-O-Vicryl or whatever it may be for deep dermals. And then I really like 5-O running, locking. I will, in front of the tragus, that's kind of a, a tough area sometimes to remove um, stitches, or I should say retro tragal. So in that area, I'll, I've now actually switched to 5-O-Chromic around the lobule, again, 5-O-Nylon. Um, in the posterocular crease, I use 4-0 plane at the moment. And then in the occipital hairline, it's a 4-0 running walking. Um, and then the chin, again, 5-0 vicryl, and then a 5-0 running walking. So I think I'm sure like most surgeons, you kind of, you go through a hundred different types of, of techniques and sutures. And then I guess eventually you settle on something you like. So that's, that's where I am currently. And I would say in the last six, Nine months, um, I've been really pleased with the results, at least aesthetically, from the scarring with, with that. And any thoughts on skin glue? I don't use it. I've visited <laughs> a lot of facial plastic surgeons over the years. I haven't seen uh, one that I can remember. I mean, I, you know, it's different if it's like a, a two-year-old who comes right. you know, as a, fr- a friend's kid, he's got a little nick, and, you know, the last right. thing you want to do is, you know, create more trauma, I think, and they'll heal, obviously, tremendously well. So that. That could be fine, but you know, in your adult patient population, I don't, I don't think that's satisfactory. In terms of your post-op instructions, what is part of their post-op routine? Anything special? Anything that you have them do? Um, yeah, so they all, you know, as I mentioned earlier, they all get arnica and bromelain for bruising and swelling. Um, we give them a scar cream to start applying once the stitches come out. We have them undergo hyperbaric oxygen. We have them undergo lymphatic massages. That's actually a, a big component as well, which I think really helps, you know, their circulation and get some of the drainage out. And we have them keep the ones who listen and really keep the, the suture line clean. That's really important and, and just easy on us, honestly, too, when, we, when they come back to have them removed. And then just avoiding any like heavy straining or exertion. Some of these patients just like they're affluent or successful business people, businessmen and women, and, and they want to get back to their lives. And so some of them are workout junkies. And so it's like, hey, just take it, like, let your body heal, take it easy. And promise, you know, you'll get back to that before you know it, but I don't want you to, you know, stress yourself too soon. Yeah. In terms of the HBO or the lymphatic massage, when do you start that post-op? So usually post-op day one, they get, they go for hyperbaric oxygen. You really want to find a facility that can at least, you know, get up to two ATMs. I think, you know, if you're at 1.4, 1.5, it's almost like, you know, not really doing anything. Um, so ideally you can get up to two. And then the lymphatic massage is usually like post-op day three or four. They'll love that. We have an esthetician here in my office. She's excellent, Ari. And she's actually also coexists as my social media manager. And um, she's now a trained esthetician and she's great. And she um, they'll usually get a package with her after the first one that we include for them. And they'll usually end up doing like three more or so. Okay. And then in terms of uh, complications, uh, how do you counsel patients and what have you seen in practice? Of course, we have, you know, it's in our consent forms and the usual, the traditional with uh, most of our skin soft tissue surgeries. So uh, hematoma, it's fortunately very rare, maybe one in a hundred. Uh, we talk about sensory issues. So it's more likely, if anything, nerve related going to be perhaps you cauterize or bodhi next or bipolar, you know, close to the greater rick. And so they're maybe they're a little bit numb behind their ear. Facial paralysis is actually very rare. And in fact, the rate of complication from that is the same if you're doing a deep plane versus a, a SMAS surgery. So any surgeon who's going to tell you that it's safer to do that, it's, that's not actually technically true based on research. Now, scarring, bruising, swelling, of course, is expected. 
I think those are the main complications. So as we start to wrap it up, any final pearls? Like I've learned so much, Dimitri, and I'm like so in awe. I think you have an amazing practice and I would love to have you back on to talk more about practice building and also about this custom skincare line. Um, <laughs> very cool. Yeah. But uh, before we get it, uh, any final pearls? Um, well, for any of the the residents, you know, listening out there, anyone still in training for that matter, I mean, really take advantage of your time in residency because you're not really, you're never going to get that back when you're going to have 20, 30, 40, you know, faculty members around you who, you know, all do things a little different. And that's honestly one of the, I know it's crazy to say, or, but I, I love my residency. You guys were awesome at UT Southwestern. We'll be forever grateful for the, the training I received there. And honestly, just the camaraderie that you developed amongst your co-residents and, and the faculty. I mean, you, you know me, I mean, I feel like I was laughing, laughing half the time and you're, you know, you're busting your ass and working hard, but <laughs> I loved it. So I would say, you know, take advantage of try to learn. You pick up, you know, one or two pearls from each of your attendings and and try to, you know, what you think works best for you and incorporate that into your practice um, moving forward. And if you know what you want to do with your career, you know, early on, then, you know, I, I obviously you want to get a broad training, but at the same time, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing to kind of, you know, hone in on, you know, the laryngologist, if that's what you want to do, or facial plastic surgery. And for me, like I said, the best thing I ever did was to you know, leech on to the guys that we had at, at Southwestern, but also go out into the community and, and, and see different, you know, perspectives. So anyway, I just think take advantage of that time. And I think by and large, everyone is welcoming that, you know, no one's going to turn you down and be like, no, I don't shoot to, to be there. So, you know, you got to shoot your shot, you know, it can't hurt to at least ask and be like, hey, you know, I would like to come observe. And I'm sure people will um, definitely embrace you with open arms. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dimitri, for taking the time. If any of our listeners want to reach out to you, I mean, you have a beautiful website. Is it drdimitrimd.com? Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Or they could shoot me a message on, I, you know, I think everyone's so plugged into social media these days. So my Instagram, you can send me a message. It's drdimitri, D-E-M-E-T-R-I. And um. I'd be happy to connect and share more thoughts or have you in to, to hang out with us for a day or a week or whatever it may be. That's awesome. Well, thank you again. I think it's a wrap. All right. Thanks so much for having me. It was really it was a privilege to be here. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's Version Hess and Yvonne Ovijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.